Hello, I'm Michael Shorten, Chicago Wiz. Welcome. Thanks for listening. This is episode 35, catching up on call-ins and questions and answers. Over the past four weeks, as I've been doing sheltering in place with COVID and the state of Illinois ordering a lockdown, I've been very busy with work. Working from home has proven to be quite uh, challenging in both the amount of work I'm doing and I've been really diving into playing games. So my apologies. I've let some of these call-ins build up a little bit, especially from one particular listener who I'm very grateful for. And I'm going to answer those now somewhat in a mixed order. I'm doing them in order of subject. First, we have some great call-ins about video games. Hey, Michael, I was listening to your latest podcast, got uh, partway through it so far, but I wanted to comment on the, the video games because I think it's it definitely is a influential thing. It, even though I, you know, I started before all the video games, and I think you, you know, did too. But it, but when they did come in, uh, definitely influenced. I think how you played and uh, how you could run a game in a way, or use some of the mechanics and stuff that were inside the game, such as Ultima. And uh, uh, what was the other one that you were talking about? Oh, they like the the original like Daggerfall from the Elder Scrolls and stuff. That just kind of blew my mind when I found that one. That was just like wow. But uh, yeah, good show. I've got to listen to the rest of it early morning, uh, heading to work. So take care, Michael. Hey there, Chicago Wiz. It's uh, Che Webster from Roleplay Rescue, and I uh, just wanted to say a big thank you for the episode talking about. Ultima, and you're playing with that with OD&D. Uh, fascinating stuff, and you reminded me so much. Um, I started playing Ultima 1 uh, way back in the day when my dad bought it, and we had it on our, our computer at home. I can't even remember which of the three or four computers my dad owned uh, it was on. Um, but uh, it was awesome, and I really got obsessed with it, and Ultima 2 and 3 too, uh, so I'm with you on that one. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was just um, I really fancy getting some gaming in in that place and um Caesarea and all of that was just fascinating to me so thank you for just rekindling all of that memory and kind of making me think of all the stuff that I could just go and steal and and put into my own campaign because man that stuff is just so rich and easily forgotten because you know what's it been 40 years or something game on thanks man hey michael jason here finally finished going all the way through your back catalog Really enjoyed your AD&D combat series, and your Ultima World sounds very interesting. I always played um, Fantasy with a PH. That was the, I think Fantasy 3 maybe is the one I played, the main computer game I played on my Commodore 64. I actually never played the Ultima games. They're available. I can buy all three for $6 on um, GOG, great old games. So I may just pick the Ultima series up, one, two, three, and and see what it's all about. Because, you know, it sounds interesting. But, yeah, that's, I don't play video games really anymore. I, I don't have the time to, so I, so I probably shouldn't even buy these because I wouldn't have time to play them either. But I, I am curious. So, anyhow, really enjoyed all your back catalog, and I look forward to your new episodes. Take care. That was Tim Shorts of Gothridge Manor, Che Webster of Roleplay Rescue, and Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast, talking about video gaming 
and some of their experiences. And they were commenting on my previous episodes where I was talking about my first computer RPG experiences, the old early 80s Ultima games. I had talked about them on a previous episode and how I've actually got a Dungeons and Dragons campaign going on in the Ultima world. So I want to thank you to those three for commenting. Video games definitely influenced my expectations from RPGs in that they opened my eyes to this possibility of wide worlds that one could explore and the sheer joy that I got from exploring them. I think prior to that, I hadn't really considered that when I was doing Dungeons and Dragons, I was just coming up with, you know, little dungeons and I'd read a module here and there and never really clicked. But when I got into the Ultima games, it just opened my eyes into how much I craved worlds to explore. And that's been true for computer games that I play ever since. I was obsessed with Ultima as well. I played the first three games voraciously, and I was always trying to find new places. Maybe there was something hidden that I could find, or maybe if I went over here and explored this boundary, I could find, you know, a new dungeon or something. And wasn't successful, of course, but it definitely spurred me on to try to do things and some of the same things that I do today with the computer games I play. It is kind of funny, though. Uh, you know, Jason was talking about going back and buying the old Ultima games. I have them on my hard drive as well, but I find it harder today to play the older games. Um, they take up a lot more time than I remember. You definitely need a lot of patience because many of those games are very grindy at first. You, know, you can barely survive, and, and that's hard, and you've got to put in the time to build up the levels and get to the point where you can survive. I think much more so than today's more modern games where you definitely have, I think, an easier ramp to getting into a point where you can survive the game and truly explore it. I find that on a lot of older games that either I remember nostalgically or that I've always wanted to play, I end up watching other people play them on YouTube or Twitch. Um, the game really has to pull me in, something like how Skyrim pulled me in. You know, oh my God, Skyrim's almost 10 years old, but I still remember those first feverish days and weeks where I was just exploring everything about that game, and it just really pulled me in. Um, Minecraft recently has done that as well. I've been installing dungeon mods to be able to go and do dungeon delves and whatnot and figure out how to defeat them using the mechanics of Minecraft. And that's kind of pulled me in. It's really hard for me to find the time to commit, though, to digging down into video games because I have so much else going on with my miniature gaming and my role-play gaming. So there you go. Jason, interestingly enough, has since that episode joined in my Ultima Play by Boast campaign. He is a magic user, and he found himself thrown right into the middle of a huge giant rat slugfest. The players did manage to get through that without serious damage, so they've earned some experience. But of course, since this is an original Dungeons & Dragons-derived game, they only have one or two D6 dice worth of hit points, so in this even the giant rats be can become a huge challenge, which is just like the early 80s RPG games. So welcome, Jason, and thank you all for your comments. Now we've got some other call-ins. Let's give them a listen. Hey, Jason here. 
So I just finished listening to your first couple episodes talking about, you know, creating your sandbox campaign and really enjoyed that. I've always been more of a paper, paper journal kind of guy than an electronic one. You talk about using a wiki and all, and I kind of write notes in a paper journal, which I may do a combination of the two. The paper is just really handy for me because I can pull out my little notepad or pull out my journal and write, write in it. But I definitely see the utility and understand the utility of the electronic one because it definitely would be a lot more organized. So there's a lot to that. Um, yeah, so I'm going through. N not related to that, but... Uh oh, I do like your idea. Yeah, using Oriental Adventures and tracking the... I was going to do that anyway. I was trying to remember how to track what's going on in the world. You know, aside from the players, I forgot about Oriental Ventures, so I'm glad you mentioned that, that that tool's in there. So Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast did a listen through my backlog of episodes, and there are quite a few messages from him in this episode that I'm going to be answering. Electronic documents, they are priceless to me, especially now with all my gaming currently online with COVID and sheltering in place. I can have my dungeon keys, my wilderness keys, and various other documents up on the screen with Roll20 showing the maps, and I can easily bounce back and forth with them, much more so than if I was sitting at the tabletop with a notebook and paper and trying to thumb through all of them. So I'm getting rather hooked to having all that information at my fingertips. <laughs> Wasn't what that... Uh, uh, Microsoft and Bill Gates wanted to do information at your fingertips. Well, I have it now with my RPGing. Um, I also like that with electronic documents like Google Drive, anywhere I am at work, at home, on the road with my phone, I can pull up a Google Drive document and take down notes when inspiration strikes me. And that's very invaluable for me. Even more so now that I can do voice recordings using Google's uh, recording function and then have it do voiced text translation and put it in my Google Drive. So that's that's been very valuable. I have to admit, I do wish that Obsidian Portal had been more reliable. Obsidian Portal being a campaign wiki place. Over the past few years, I just found it to be very poorly supported and crashing a lot. And that's why I moved from my Obsidian Portal wiki to a local installation of MediaWiki. That's the software that drives Wikipedia. The thing that I miss is being able to have public information and GM notes privately hidden, but also on the same page so that, say, for a city or for a particular NPC, I could have what's publicly available and then my own notes and everything was kind of all in one place. I don't have that with MediaWiki, and honestly, I don't have the time to try to really find another package or um, substitution that'll give me both. I'm kind of considering making a private wiki that'll have my ongoing notes um, just just as a place to do that. I don't know. I'm still considering that. In the meantime, Google Docs is serving the purpose for me. I'm also definitely going to steal your idea the the moon's gone away. I believe I heard you mention that in one of your, maybe one of the war game ones. And um, yeah, I like that idea. I think that that's a great, you know... You know, there used to be a moon, but now there isn't. You know, not like immediately, but like a generation ago, there was a moon. 
like a generation ago it disappeared. So the characters have actually, you know, the players are just going to have heard rumors of this moon and, and go from there. So I, I, I definitely think that's interesting. So anyhow, talk to you later. Bye. But all that said, I do appreciate the heads up. That's, that's very kind of you. And I will definitely keep you in the loop. I'll give you calls, whatever, on as we go. I'm not really sure what we're going to do right now. I know we're going to play the starter set and the essentials kit initially to get used to 5th edition. Because I've never played it or run it. And then I think we're going to do, we've been talking about doing a post-apocalyptic, well, like we talked about online. The, you know, a Thunder or, or like you talked about, the um, heavy metal kind of vibe. Which, you know, if we do post-weapons for the most part, where they're, they've reverted back to, to a lot of melee weapons and whatnot, we could definitely use some war game rules in that. So, it's going to be interesting. But, yeah, I'm not really sure, but I'll keep you in the loop on that definitely. So, you take care of yourself, stay safe, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Jason. Oh, yes, no moon. I love putting that out there to new players in my campaign when they're talking about, oh, well, since it's night and we're camping, I'll look for things by the light of the moon. And I ask them, what moon? And they give me that confused look and I let them know that there is no moon in this world that you are in. And the look of, oh, that comes across the players' faces. And I see them transported to a world in their mind where there's no moon. I love that look. I live for that look. Those kinds of discoveries in one's imagination, that to me is the essence of D&D through and through, no matter what edition you play. If you can do that to your players, if you can find that as a player, then I think you have found the magic of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Post-apocalyptic heavy metal campaigns. That also is an unrequited love of mine. I've always unrequited, unrequited. I probably mispronounced that, but oh well. I've always wanted to play in a game or a world derived from something like that, like you know the world of wizards or the world of Thundar, or you know the world from the Den or Taarna stories from the '80s heavy metal movie. Those there's something in those stories that really tugs at my D and D heartstrings with the themes in them. I, I don't know what it is. I, I think that's why I loved the first Fallout movie, Fallout movie, movies, the first Fallout games from the '80s, and especially Fallout Three, the uh, the 3D first person uh, post apocalyptic game. I love having those kinds of worlds to explore because I, I think. That's where some of my fantasy ideas and tropes live. <laughs> what can I say? You know, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. We grew up in that time under the shadow of the hydrogen missile. We expected that at some point we might die from nuclear war. You know, I don't think those things never really go away, do they? The influences just kind of live on in all that we do. Hey, Jason here, heading into work, listen, again, listen to your back catalog. So episode eight, which is from February of two years ago, you talked about how you modify the AD&D rules. Target 20, what an, I think that's the right name. What a neat idea. I've, not, I've encountered kind of similar things, but not that exact idea. That's really slick, really simple, and I, I like that a lot.
Um, the, the other things, the initiative work, the combat sequence is interesting because you're split and move up. We're, now, do you make everybody declare their actions at the beginning before things kick off? So is the very first part, you know, declare actions and then you go, you know, go into it? Or do you do initiative and then declare actions? I'm curious when they declare actions in your combat sequence. Talk to you later. Target 20 is a combat algorithm for Dungeons & Dragons, mostly older Dungeons & Dragons editions, defined by Daniel Collins. He's the author of Delta's OD&D blog, which you may have heard me refer to before, as well as Daniel wrote that wonderful little war game, Book of War. Daniel wrote Target 20 to replace the charts and Thacko to hit armor class zero rules that uh, are in the older editions. He's a statistician. I think he really just wanted to get into the math geekness of it. But that algorithm is so easy because it's all based on addition that it's remained the most constant house rule in my game since I started my campaign back in 2009. Really don't see myself changing from using Target 20. I'll put a link to that combat algorithm post of Daniel's in the show notes. Now, the answer to your question, Jason, for action declaration, when I was using a more defined combat sequence of we do missile this phase, we do movement this phase, we do spells this phase, and so on, yes, I would have the players declare actions, and then we do the role for initiative. Now, interestingly, since I've been going back to advanced Dungeons and Dragons rules as written, and I've been using the combat uh, rules within the book more strictly by the book, a combat sequence has become less defined in many ways. I really don't have a combat sequence anymore unless someone is charging or initiative is tied or spell casting is is involved, then they have to tell me up front that they're doing any of those things. Um, but overall, now, I go round robin when it's the PC's turn. They move, they fire missiles, they do melee and other actions when I call on them, or they hold action until a little bit later, you know, depending. But by and large, there really is no sequence anymore like there was, say, in war games or in some of the uh, other games like Basic Expert where you had a definitive phase for doing things. Hey, Michael, Jason here. Really enjoying your back episodes on to listen to 20 and part 21 on the way to work. It, you know, listen to yours in addition to all, all the new podcasts people are putting out. Um, you know, I've got, I've, I always call it the Doomsday Book, but I, I've got actually got a copy of the Doomsday Book. You know, I, I forget who printed it, but somebody printed it. So a decade or well, more than that now, probably two decades ago, I, it's nice, like a faux leather bound, you know, I think it's three volume set. Uh, pretty neat stuff. But um, anyhow, I'll talk to you later on. R- really enjoying your thoughts. I really liked your, your city and village generator stuff. I need to get back on your blog and look at those notes and, and look up some of that stuff. Um, I think what I'm going to do, I don't want to totally map out the world, but I want to pre-generate a couple places. So when people come across it, I've got them ready to pull out. So, And then I'll plug them on the map. So talk to you later. I still use the generators derived from S. John Ross's essay on how to generate kingdoms and demographics 
that was based on his research into the Domesday books. I think it would be fascinating to have a set or access to a set of the Domesday books. That would be interesting to read them. Uh, the Domesday books, what were they? They were a census of sorts or a survey of lands and ownership of those lands and lots of other related information that was collected in the ninth century England by order of King William I. Um, and since then, they've served as a wonderful look into life into ninth century England and ninth century world in Europe, as it were. It's invaluable for filling in hexes if you're running a European-style fantasy game because the approach that a generator based on the Domesday information really adds a bit of similitude to the feel of your lands and your kingdoms that I think would be hard to get if you were just kind of doing it on your own. Interestingly enough, one of the things that I've been doing during COVID uh, shut-in is I've taken it upon myself to keep myself sharp by learning a new computer programming language. Now, the language I've chosen is Python. And to help with that, I'm taking my big Frankenstein spreadsheet hex generation system and turning it into a Python program. And I've been going back and rereading some of Ross's essay and looking at some of the things derived from the Domesday books and incorporating it into this Python generator. So I'm kind of excited about that. I'll put a link in the show notes to that essay by S. John Ross if you'd like to take a look. And I do highly recommend it. Hey, Michael. Jason here. Just listen to your interview with your wife. Really enjoyable interview. Thank you for recording that and sharing that with everyone. You know, it, it, I'm getting ready to start this one-on-one campaign, hopefully, within the next month with my son. And so it gives me a lot to think about. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. The reaction to episode number 32 interview with my wife was really wonderful. It really warmed our hearts. And I'm so happy that folks enjoyed it. And I hope that maybe perhaps that episode has helped some folks to try one-on-one -on -one gaming with their spouses or maybe a, a child or a family member. It's just such a wonderful, intimate way to share time together. Unfortunately, it's been hard for us to squeeze in a game since I recorded and published that episode, but I'm hopeful we'll be able to squeeze one in in the next few days. Unfortunately, with the COVID uh, shelter in place, having the grandkids around 24-7 has made it hard to have alone time to actually do some gaming in. But we'll see what happens. Hey, Jason again. I know you're a busy guy, but if you had the chance, I know I would enjoy if you read through Unearthed Arcana and gave us your thoughts. I, I would really enjoy that. Um... I do think there are things in there that are quite broken, but I'd be really curious to see what, what you think and, and your thoughts on the book. Uh, I realize a deep dive of Unearth or Cain and your comments on it would be a pretty big project, so I'm definitely not wishing it on you, but if, if you decided to do that, I would definitely tune in for it. So, just thought. Yes, as I mentioned in episode number 34... I am indeed going to do a Chicago Is Reads Unearthed Arcana series. Probably next episode I will start that. 
I have no idea what to expect. I'm actually a little bit nervous, both in terms of what I might read and how it might turn out. I also think I might stream it a little bit. I'm not quite sure how this all turn out, but it'll be a fun experiment. So, wish granted. Hey, Michael, Jason here. I finally listened to your interview with Hobbs over on Hobbs and Friends. I apologize it took me so long to listen to it. So, I didn't know your name came from, from a cyberpunk infatuation. That's pretty cool. Um, Unix, yeah, once upon a time, messed a little bit with that in the Army. Um, was a sign to doing personnel stuff. The Once upon a time, the Army had a personnel system called SIPPERS-3. And it was a Unix, well, Sun, Sun, Sun Unix, Sunco Unix. Anyway, and I mess a Linux since then. I, I still got a Linux laptop, actually. But anyhow, so... I know you have plenty of games on your plate, but have you ever thought about returning to Cyberpunk if Cyberpunk was a love? I'd, I'd be very interested in, in doing a Cyberpunk one-shot. Just throwing that out there. Anyhow, take it easy. I hope you and your family are doing well. Talk to you soon. What Jason was referring to there was a recent episode I did as an interview with Jason Hobbs of Hobbs and Friends, and I'll leave a link to that episode in the show notes. Once again, Jason, I'm Jason Hobbs. I'm very grateful that you allowed me to uh, be a guest on your show. It was a lot of fun. Um, in that episode, I spoke some about the three hexes campaign starter approach that I use how I do wilderness and hexes in my campaign. Plus, we talked a little bit about wargaming and campaigns. It was a lot of fun. Please do give it a listen. As far as running a cyberpunk game, I'm running or playing in 10 games right now, so I think I'm good. <laughs> I think I'm maxed out on my, uh, on my capacity. But actually, the question brings up a little bit of reflection on, in my, on my part in that I think I have fallen out of love with cyberpunk. I'm not sure why. I don't know if it's just a case that cyberpunk was overdone and I've had my fill of it, or if maybe the world has caught up to the point where now we're living out our fiction, or what. I'm not sure. I'm just not nearly as enamored with the subject as, as I once was. You know, maybe it's a reflection of myself and the comparison between the angry young man that I was in the 80s and early 90s and the, I believe, more mellow person that I am in this 21st century. It's an interesting thought to think that we can trace our own changes in how we game. It kind of shows that maybe games are related very deeply to the mythology and the stories that we're writing with our own lives as much as anything else. What do you think? Yo, what's up, Chicago Wiz? Glad to hear a new episode from you. Glad to hear you're getting through this all right and doing some online gaming and stuff. But I wanted to call and say, like, unless you're using maps and minis, you don't really need roll 20 especially if you're using zoom you could do all sorts of visual stuff with zoom and plus like you could sketch up a map and just hold it up to the camera like you don't have to scan and send stuff to everybody it's maybe a little nicer but i i certainly don't think roll 20 is any sort of necessity i i don't even think it's ah, never mind i don't want to get on my 
fucking soapbox about Roll20. But anyway, man, like I just wanted to let you know that Roll20 is a tricky a tricky little devil sometimes. So don't feel like you need to use Roll20. Anyway, that's enough for me. I don't know what I'm talking about. Peace out. That is Joe from Hindsightless. Thanks, Joe. Really appreciate the comments. I completely agree with you that a GM doesn't need Roll20 to have a great game. Truth be told, I think my foray into Roll20 is as much a geek and nerd thing and a let's push myself to learn something new thing as anything else. But I have to admit that after a month of all my gaming being online and using Roll20 quite a bit, I'm completely happy with how it's turning out. I'll give you an example. I just showed my year-long online campaign players a top-down battle map of a place that they've been exploring for nearly a year, Griffin's Keep. Um, They've been exploring it since the first game, and I bought a piece of software called Dungeon Draft, which allowed me to very quickly make up this entire hilltop and the woods and the ruined castle complex. They were thrilled. They they loved it. They're still fighting it right now, but it's really added something to that whole enjoyment, buy into the game that they could really see how I visualized it and help them to visualize it themselves. Um, I do still try to keep away from grid-based board game kind of play, although I will admit that it is nice to have the option to do some measuring, especially, you know, if you have things like area of effect spells going off and they want to know, you know, where does the entangle happen and who's caught by that. Um, Roll20 does make that a little bit easier. I'm not really going to go much further than I have. I mean, you know, the players do their own macros, and I think that's wonderful. I pretty much use it just for the maps and the dice roller and the ability to have little tokens moving around and to keep character sheets. And it serves its purpose great, and I'm happy with that. So your mileage may vary. Hey, Michael, Tim Shorts from Gothridge Manor here. Just listen to your latest episode. Oh, man, I love that book from Paul Anderson. That's, I mean, he's one of my favorite authors anyways. But, yeah, that was such a cool book. It's one of those ones, like you said, it's so densely packed with stuff. It almost reminded me of the original Dune book where it was just you had so much in so few pages. It was fantastic. And our Unearthed Arcania is an interesting uh, – remember when it first came out, I remember I was in the – crowd where I got tired of fighters always being the weakest ones and mages would just blow up the world kind of thing. Unearthed came, he came along and tried to fix some of that or tried to give fighters a little bit more options, but you know, people were not happy with it, but it has some very interesting gems in there and uh, take a look at it sometimes. It, it's it, it's uh, definitely worth a look. All right. Take care. Stay safe, Michael. Thanks for the message, Tim. I agree, Dune is an amazing book. I've started having an every couple of year reread of that first book, Dune, much like I used to do with Lord of the Rings. I find that ever since the movies, Lord of the Rings, I tend not to read the books as much. And Dune, not having had a recent movie that has captured my imagination as much as the book, I I find the book has been calling me to it, so... It's getting a read. I'm currently, and I have it right in front of me, I'm currently reading another book by Paul Anderson called The Broken Sword. 
This is an interesting book because it was written by Paul Anderson when he was much younger. It was, in his words, quote, slow to find a publisher, as well as it apparently only had a single printing for a long time. Then once Paul got more well-known and more famous, Ballantyne and Del Rey started publishing this book again. It is so far, and I'm only about uh, 15, 20 pages into it, it's very much swords and sorcery style book. Very interesting, very much based on older Norse mythology so far. I'm really enjoying it. Now, apparently, in Paul's view, this book is far more violent than the older Paul Anderson prefers. I found that kind of interesting. And you know, that's something I just touched on previously. It's interesting how we change and our approaches evolve and change. You know, kind of like how gamer Gary Gygax evolved into rules Gary Gygax, where we saw that change from original Dungeons and Dragons of just make it up and have fun and, you know, go with the flow and your own rules work to AD&D being a rules-must-be-followed attitude. So that's interesting. When I sit here and think about it, how I've evolved in my gaming and my expectations of games, how have you evolved? All of you, listeners, think about that. How have you evolved in your gaming over the years and what you expect from games and what you expect from yourself in playing those games? So Unearthed Arcana and Fighters, that's very interesting, Tim. Again, not having read Unearthed Arcana, I have no idea what to expect. But I find it interesting your view of fighters as being limited because I've personally never had that view of fighters. I've always found them to be the most accessible class as compared to the others. You know, and I've also found that because fighters had access to all the weapons and armor and a great many magic items, and especially the prospect of the fighter's endgame as being a lord or lady of castles and kingdoms, that's something that I always found greatly appealing. In fact, whenever I'm playing a new game, I tend to play a fighter. You know, if I'm jumping into a game at a convention or if I've bought a computer RPG that has classes, I tend to gravitate towards the fighter as the first time because I find they tend to be a great entry point into the world. Usually means I don't have to know as much mechanically about the game to be a wizard or, you know, something that's a little more rules in depth. Usually fighters are pretty easy to get into and I have the expectation that I'm going to be moderately successful as a fighter. Hey, Jason here. Just want to say I enjoyed your episode on Pursuit in AD&D. Uh, Lonely Venture over the Camping with Owlbears podcast. It recently put an episode up about chases and chase mechanics. And, and so I enjoyed you breaking down the AD&D, you know, the 1E AD&D version, and then how you actually do it in games. I'm sure that's going to help some folks out, so thank you very much. I look forward to hearing how you break down um, Unearthed Arcana and yeah, we'll look forward to your episodes in the future so keep podcasting thank you for all that you do we'll talk to you soon Hi, this is uh, this is Rob, also known as Minion, calling from Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy thanks very much for the latest uh, episode, it's the first one I've listened to the one on Pursuit and the Evasion 
Um, actually, I had in my group um, uh, an evasion situation or a chase situation just about three weeks ago, so it was really good timing. Um, thanks, anyway. Um, great uh, stuff, really, really clear. I actually went to the DMG and sort of read for it again, and it seemed uh, much clearer after your um, exposition. Anyway, hope to uh, listen to more episodes from here on. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. And I forgot to mention, I was just looking at the Old School Essentials Pursuit and uh, Evasion rules as well and comparing them with those in the first edition AD&D. And, uh, you know, they compare pretty well. I mean, there's obvious differences, but the, the sort of the essence is not so not so dissimilar. Anyway, I thought that might be of some interest. Thank you, Jason and Rob, also known as Menyon, for your comments on my Pursuit episode, which was episode 34 of the previous episode of this podcast. Um, interesting to know that OSC is as simple as BX, which is no surprise since OSC is based on the old Moldvay rules as a more modern retelling. Um, I hope that uh, you will use the episode and find your future pursuits be fruitful. Um, in fact, right now, my online players who've been playing in my Western Borders game have started pursuing a villain. They've managed to get through the big boss battle. They even turned away a lesser wraith, and they've chased this cleric out of his keep and into the general grounds, and so they're about to set off on a pursuit. So I may have a reason to use these rules myself, so we'll see how it goes. If you've made it this far in the podcast, I hope you enjoyed it. Once again, I'd like to thank all of the folks that called in. That would be Tim Shorts, Che Webster, Jason, and Rob, and last but not least, Joe. I've put links to all of their podcasts in my show notes, and I highly encourage you to go give them a listen. They are on the Discord server called Audio Dungeon, which is a great place to go if you are interested in podcasting, if you are already a D&D podcaster, or if you just want to hang out with a bunch of great, great folks. Well, that's about it for this episode. I hope you all are being safe and staying safe. Be assured that I and my family are doing very well. We are staying very safe. And although we're feeling a little bit stir-crazy, the end is in sight. We are going to make it through this as tough as it is, as difficult as it may be. Um, If you've lost someone close to you from COVID, uh, please, you have my condolences If you are worried and scared about it, please talk to someone, um, whether it's a family member, someone online. There are a great many resources being made available by local, state, and other services if you need someone to talk to. These are very hard times, but we will get through it together. And through it all, we'll be rolling those dice. So until next time, game on.